and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Samir Lalwani, senior expert in the Asia Center at the United States Institute of Peace and a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Samir, welcome back to the show. It's good to see you. Thank you. It's been a while, but I'm glad to be back. I'm going to pick your brain about India in the context of U.S. strategy, but first I want to take a minute to ask you about an old paper that you published with Josh Schifferson, another friend of the show, that's uh, long been a favorite of mine. You and Josh published this piece critiquing U.S. strategy, the, the U.S. strategy of maintaining maritime dominance or command of the commons as it's been called, and and you call for a more modest naval posture instead. Just to start us out, um, do you want to just kind of reiterate what you guys found in that paper? Yeah, you know, we made a a number of, I think the sort of the central claim was essentially that the commons were not as fragile as they had been made out to be. Uh, uh, There was a whole bunch of debates going on a decade ago, uh, and that the commons were sort of threatened by a whole range of new non-state actors, pirates, smugglers, the longer range sort of anti-access capabilities that were proliferating to a whole bunch of countries, more uh, aggressive and assertive naval powers were being distributed around the world. And so our condition was that the fragility was not as great as it seemed, and that there were some natural mechanisms within the commons and the, sort of the, the, you know, the state system that would counteract that. And those two natural mechanisms were you know, the incentives of capitalism, uh, all states sort of want to reduce costs, reduce transaction costs, enhance um, the sort of shipping lanes or sort of in- ensure that uh, there's freedom of navigation for commercial a- actions. And then uh, sort of a, another mechanism that like, ba- uh, that balancing was sort of the dominant approach of states that felt threatened so if their interests were challenged in a particular way. And um, we also sort of had an argument in there about how essentially the threat to the commons, essentially like the sort of the state-based threats, uh, were about technologies um, enabling uh, more of the commons to be contested. So I think we were sort of going back to Barry Posen's original concept of sort of the, the space between the contested zones and the commons, and essentially the contested zones were being pushed out. Um, and ultimately, uh, that was not like a game changer, but sort of an incremental challenge that could be sure. offset with other technologies. Um, and I think what we were trying to argue is that a, an approach that was maybe focused on security of the commons, uh, that was about sort of ensuring the ability to leverage it when we so chose, uh, rather than total dominance at all times, was probably a more reasonable approach, uh, less demanding sort of fiscally in terms of naval power. Uh, and that you know, the savings that you accrue from sort of that maybe less sort of aggressive, sort of always present posture uh, could go back into the core of what allows for, um, you know, U.S. technological advantages, which was like, uh, you know, the defense industrial base, research, education, um, sort of the, the foundations of the U.S.'s uh, technology advantage. And that ultimately would then adjudicate the balance between the contested zone and the commons. So it got a little philosophical got a little specific. I mean, I will say one, like there are a couple things sort of evolved since that, that made me at least, and I haven't talked with Josh in a while about this, but made me at least um, maybe a little more circumspect about some of the sort of contentions we made. I mean, I, I, I do think that uh, while we were right about those two mechanisms of sort of capitalism and balancing sort of being dominant drivers that ensured general stability in the commons, um, I think one thing I've realized is that 
capitalist incentives may not dominate state decision making and that states make very bad decisions that are uh, sort of antithetical to market principles and antithetical to their own sort of rational uh, economic self-interest. And we were seeing that happening a lot, particularly with China, but other actors as well. And so you could not rely on that as a mechanism. And while it's sort of a, it's still a prevailing incentive, there are lots of times when states could uh, choose sort of state interests or ideological or individual power interest above that, um, that could still lead to sort of cataclysmic events. So I wasn't, I think I sort of attenuated my, my reliance on that. And then on the balancing uh, argument, I actually have evolved a lot on this because um, what I think is that while balancing is ultimately where states want to get to, there's a, a tremendous lag effect, right? So there's, and I think this sort of goes back to a lot of Randy Schweller's work on underbalancing, uh, that balancing can take a really long time because it's a massive coordination challenge, especially if it's multi-party coalitional balancing. And those challenges of coordination, information sharing, uh, scaling up sort of, you know, um, uh, industrial production while also bringing your sort of domestic publics along, that takes a really long time. It took France and, and Britain a long time to sort of get caught up to where they needed to be in order to defend um, against sort of the German uh, German military and sort of German aggression. And by the time they did, there were huge sort of advantages that the Germans had accrued. And there was tremendous costs that had been um, paid by a lot of countries in Europe. And so to me, there is potentially an interest in not just relying on automaticity of balancing, but trying to actively uh, drive and coordinate it early, um, such that you sort of those wheels of motion are taking place uh, sooner rather than later, and also that they can function as a deterrent that prevents sort of an aggressor from thinking that they have a window of opportunity. May not be perfect, but you know. So I think it helps both in terms of deterrence and defense. So that's a long way of. Uh, of sort of like maybe some 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 potential correctives if I were ever rewrite the paper in the future. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I'd like to actually pull on a couple of those threads. Um, so I think you, as you mentioned, and as I think you cite in the paper, there's good research showing that global markets tend to respond pretty capably to supply shocks and sea lane disruptions and so on. Um, and although there's this discussion about what U.S. naval power would do in the event of some disruption or some daring action by a state. I'm also curious about whether or not our current naval posture achieves or accomplishes the things that the U.S. says it achieves and accomplishes. So I'm wondering if these are contingencies that we can maneuver around and manage without perpetually trying to prevent it militarily. I'm almost kind of reminded of the, of the Simpsons Bear Patrol bit. Are you familiar with this? So Homer Simpson sees a, a van with a siren on it labeled, labeled Bear Patrol, and it's, you know, speeding through Springfield. And he is suddenly very thankful that the Bear Patrol is successfully keeping all the bears out of this densely populated suburban area. And Lisa, <laughs> who's the smart character in The Simpsons, picks up a random rock and says, look, this rock is keeping all the tigers away. And Homer, of course, believes it. And so the question is, are, are we actually keeping sea lanes open by having a dominant naval posture like this? Or is it more like the Bear Patrol? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I I am not a naval expert, and I, I so I hesitate to like uh, pontificate on this, but you know, it won't stop me. I'll, I'll go ahead anyways. Um, I, I think this is getting at a couple things. So one is, I'm not sure the U.S. has to sort of be forward and present everywhere at all times to deter 
disruptions of the commons. I actually, and I don't think the U.S. is doing that. Actually, some things I hear, particularly in the area I study in the Indian Ocean, is that the U.S. is often not present because between Fifth Fleet and Seventh Fleet, Fifth Fleet sort of focused principally on the Gulf. Seventh Fleet is focused on the Pacific. And the Indo part of the Indo-Pacific, vast Indian Ocean, um, is largely not um, not sort of seeing like a lot of U.S. ships. It's usually sort of site of transit rather than presence. Uh, and that still hasn't stopped the sort of the the, um, the decline of piracy uh, in the region. Um, and and so I think there are lots of other things that are sort of good substitutes. So one is other partners and powers. I think the combined maritime force was able to crowd in a lot of other partners and players uh, to sort of take on responsibility. So it's not just like on the United States. It's it's you know peacetime burden sharing. And I think the hope is that even in wartime crisis or wartime, that there would be partners that would be um, wartime burden sharing in terms of uh, ensuring stability of, of, of the commons or safe for U.S. transit and maneuver uh, should, should we need to sort of flow forces through the Indian Ocean. And I think partnerships are being built for that, for that purpose. Uh, but another thing is, look, you can get smarter about how you do this. You need not be present physically with ships at all times. You can rely on um, good data. And I think sort of one, one initiative that the, the Biden administration has led is this Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness uh, initiative, which is leveraging commercial data uh, and then feeding it through partners in the quad to a bunch of regional states to help identify anomalous activity, which could be you know, inimical to their interest, dark shipping, um, which could be illegal fishing, could be illegal trafficking, uh, it could be sort of nuclear smuggling um, or sort of you know, radioactive material smuggling, uh, and then enabling those states to uh, vector ships to you know to intercept and, and interrogate what's going on, and uh, and so I think it's like a really interesting force multiplier that again is leveraging some technology and some information sharing, um, and then um, expecting sort of lots of other countries to to bear the burden of it. So. I don't know if this is probably there are ideas for this, I'm sure, a decade ago. But for whatever reason, I think our sense of the, the discussion of the commons was basically just talking about like building up a 600 ship Navy and, you know, putting sort of putting forces and, and, and sort of countering sort of Chinese sort of port building and stuff like that. And I don't think we need to have to be symmetric like that in order to, to compete and ensure our interest in, in the commons. One aspect of this mastery of the seas strategy is that it helps enable U.S. military action. You know, having a large naval presence all around the world means the U.S. military can rapidly deploy in whatever contingency. And this is generally seen as a good thing, <laughs> you know, uh, like these assets helped us deploy to Iraq War One and Iraq War Two and Libya during the Obama years and so on. And as you and Josh note, you say absent command of the sea, the U.S. ability to act militarily would be substantially circumscribed. And here I'm thinking... Well, exactly. You know, as I see it, if, one of the major problems with U.S. foreign policy, if not, if not the major problem, is that it's overly interventionist. And that it has led not only to wasting huge amounts of resources, but it's also taken a heavy human toll. So there are ethical considerations to consider. But perhaps most importantly for, you know, wonks and policy strategists and so on, you know, it's it's uh, undermined U.S. security policy and strategy um, in our interests, you know. And so if one holds that basic view, it becomes a good thing to reevaluate the military posture that might enable and incentivize intervention. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So I think there's two things that could possibly be enabled, or at least two things that are possibly enabled by having um, 
lots of uh, presence and, and sort of a, a forward posture and, and troops and assets deployed all around the world. So one, yes, it could lower the costs of intervention in a multiplicity of contingencies that we you know, get all spun up about. And we're like, well, we have forces there. We might as well just go mess around Libya for a little bit or uh, any number of other places. Uh, and I think that is concerning, right? I mean, I think, but I also think that was happening a lot in the absence of a central organizing principle or challenge or concern for the United States. And so then opportunity knocks in like every every service, every command sort of like wants the opportunity to demonstrate their their utility. So I think there's maybe some perverse incentives like organizationally, bureaucratically, and certainly politically uh, because there's sort of like little accountability for those costs. But I do think if we now sort of are in a world where maybe you, I would argue the central challenge we're worried about is a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And uh, you need not, you, like, you know, forces deployed in the Middle East may not sort of have sort of a tremendous utility there, but having lots of access points and overflight sites and, you know, even basing options, logistics that are sort of in different theaters are actually a really useful signal of U.S. resilience, right? That we don't just have to fight our way through sort of a, the assassin's mace, um, that there are maybe other vectors of of uh, operations that could take place. Uh, and that, I think, create, can create some uncertainty. So in a way, you may not necessarily want to use all this, but you may want to sort of be able to have a potential uh, in order to enhance deterrence. I mean, that there's probably cost to it, but but I do think there's other sort of utilities that I can sort of imagine that, that would derive from, from sort of the, a, a wider posture. Yeah, so retain the capabilities, but act with restraint. If only and that's we the could get people to do that. that yeah. Right? yeah, I mean, and, and okay. that's hard to, for the, that temptation is, is always strong <laughs> with, um, with leaders. But, uh, you know, uh, I can see, again, I think a lot of that had to do with sort of the absence of uh, a really obvious interstate threat. And so there were immense incentives to sort of find, you know, rogue states or non-state threats to to go hunt uh to go find monsters to you know to search for um and but maybe my hope is that maybe now sort of a real interstate uh and global challenge will sort of focus us and husband our resources for that okay so thank you for indulging me on that um and we'll move on to india now can you just start out by kind of introducing india as a player in global politics right now um, maybe while you're at it, give us some context about the domestic situation. There's been news in recent years of the democratic backslide and kind of illiberal turn in the country. So just give people a sense of what India means in the context of global politics. Sure. Okay. I'm going to throw a lot of buzzwords at you, but I'll hopefully try to unpack them. So I think India wouldn't call itself a major power. It likes to call itself a leading power. Now, what that means might sort of the, might be this narcissism of small differences, uh, but we know structurally that India is is potentially emerging as a pole in the international system. It's got the largest population now. Uh, it's the fifth largest economy, and very quickly can become the third largest economy in the world. Uh, that's in terms of total GDP as opposed to um, GDP per capita, which is a, is an important difference because that determined, you know, that's a measure of total size rather than wealth, which can then be leveraged in different ways. Uh, but it's a formidable, you know, um, it's, it's, I think it's a more emerging as a potential pole in, in the system. Uh, it's got, um, you know, 
and pretty advanced technologies in and sort of a science and technology base, an immense talent pool. Uh, it developed nuclear weapons largely on its own. It's one of the sort of few states to have uh, done that, sort of completed the nuclear fuel cycle and um, been able to develop and deploy a fairly robust nuclear arsenal. It also is in this very unique position of kind of, it likes to call itself a bridging power, um, where it has uh, strong relations with some part, some parts of the world that are, you know, you could say are like very, um, that they are very opposed to the West. Uh, I think that the chief example of that is obviously Russia today, uh, but also Iran um, and some other states that sort of have been on um, the U.S.'s sort of you know adversary list. Uh, it's but it's also got a very strong relationship with um, OECD countries, with the G7, uh, with Western sort of you know developed economies, and it likes it likes to. Um, use that as a, as a form of currency that this is India is able to kind of play in both camps, can bridge both camps, can leverage, you know, the benefits of both. Um, so this is sort of its language of multi-alignment. Um, and I think that to some degree, there's an advantage in that too, from a U.S. perspective, which is that it suggests that India is a swing state. Um, and if you're looking to sort of build a coalition and sort of stack the balance power in your favor, you're looking for states that are not already committed and also have tremendous potential. So India is perhaps one of the largest states in terms of uh, sort of core resources of population, economy, natural resources, technology, geography that is uncommitted. And so for that reason, I think it becomes it has I think U.S. policymakers for the last two decades across multiple administrations have imagined India to be the prize uh, in sort of this geopolitical chess game. Emerging. Uh, did you have anything to say about the democratic backsliding there? Yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's another part. So I, I think that when the U.S.-India relationship was starting to really get off the ground about 20 years ago, um, one of the core foundations and assumptions of that was India's um, pretty robust multi-party democratic credentials. It, it's sort of liberal credentials were, were still intact, but I don't think we're ever as um, as rich as uh, U.S. policymakers imagined. And so that was sort of maybe like a misunderstanding. But I think India today, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about sort of India's erosion as a democracy. And it is probably important to separate out sort of the liberal part from the sort of the multi-party democratic part. I think for now, at least, the India still is a fairly competitive multi-party democracy with competitive elections. Uh, the ruling party today that's been dominating the center for the last nine years actually just lost a major state election uh, and got whomped pretty handily. So, uh, you know, that doesn't happen in autocratic states, right? So that the, so there are sort of, I think, robust um, democratic elements to their electoral system where India, I think, is really slipping um, and is, I think, a surprise to maybe U.S. policymakers, but, though we can discuss whether they should have been surprised by it. Uh, is that there are a lot of um, counter-majoritarian institutions that are being eroded. Uh, and that, I think, you know, people would point to um, the judiciary not really playing a, a real sort of active check on centralized power. Um, the uh, the media uh, really being strangled um, in India and sort of brought to heel. Um, and then minority rights kind of being uh, eroded over time, both uh, in terms of uh, de jure, but also de facto um, sort of practices that are taking place 
in, in, in India. And so, you know, violence against minorities in particular, so that, that's a, a real concern. So maybe the safest way to describe it is I think the, sort of it's becoming maybe more illiberal, uh, but still, I think, fairly democratic. Uh, now, that said, from the U.S. standpoint, I, I think we'd, we'd love for every country to be made in our own image, but that's not the case. It never has been the case. During the Cold War, we were very comfortable dealing with illiberal and non-democratic countries who were very close partners. Uh, and they weren't all just Saudi Arabia. We we're also talking about Korea and Taiwan. There were military dictatorships, obviously, um, you know, South Vietnam that we supported for a long time. And even Japan, while it was ostensibly a multi-party democracy, was just really dominated by the LDP. And you can sort of raise questions as to how fair and free and competitive like those those elections were um, during the Cold War. So, you know, the paragons today of our sort of our democratic allies in Asia uh, maybe weren't always like that in the past. And then even today, we spend a lot of time talking about India's democratic credentials, but we don't really raise them about Poland. Uh, and Poland has is also sort of going through a pretty serious backsliding, uh, but it's at the forefront of this, you know, this countering of, of Russia uh, and, and sort of is a really important player in NATO. And so I think that at the end of the day, U.S. interests ultimately trump uh, uh, values and, and U.S. interests are based on global values. Right. So we have to sort of separate out sort of how uh, domestic behavior from global behavior and states that are following um, a set of rules and a, a global order that obviously the United States has actively shaped and maybe sort of largely shaped. Um, but if they're playing along with those rules, we're cool with them. Uh, and, and if they're not only sort of playing along, but affirming them rhetorically and supporting them uh, politically and militarily, um, that's that coincides with U.S. interests. And so I, and we can um, maybe sort of look past some of the, the sort of internal domestic uh, political problems, even if it maybe is off putting to to people. But I think that is just true of like U.S. Uh, foreign policy uh, for centuries. And, and I think that that will probably continue to be true today. If, however, illiberal behavior at home starts to um, lead to sort of different behaviors uh, externally in terms of, you know, um, revanchism or, or more aggression um, against neighbors or uh, undermining freedom of navigation or overflight or violating sort of international law or, or other state sovereignty, then then I think then that starts to actually shake up sort of our calculations of, of self-interest. But so long as it's order affirming, um, I think the United States is comfortable living with that. And I think ergo, it's comfortable with um, uh, with sort of this relationship with India today. I mean, I'll just say one last thing that I think is also worth considering, which is that, you know, democracies, I think one of the strengths of them is that they they go through some downturns, but they have self-correcting mechanisms. That's sort of the, the beauty of democracy. And I think the United States, my hope is that we're seeing some of that also, you know, self-correcting a little bit today. Uh, India has gone through a like significant downturn in its dem democratic credentials from 1975 to 1977. It was essentially authoritarian rule. There was an emergency in place, uh, and then India came back from that. Right? They they managed to reject that political leadership. They had free and fair elections. A new government came in, threw them out, uh, and then that, that leader came back again later. And you know, it's it's sort of gone back and forth in different um, uh, different political leaderships. But point being, India, I still think has self correcting potential. And a lot of advocates of Indian democracy within India might even go so far as to say it's actually on India to self-correct. It is actually counterproductive for the U.S. to meddle rhetorically, politically, actively, uh, and that India is better left off to its own devices to self-correct because it has the tools and the people to, to do so. So and I'm not going to take sort of I, I, I don't know if that's true, but I, I, I that gives me some confidence that there's um 
that India has for that self-correcting potential. Successive U.S. administrations have, in a sense, tried to court India and develop military ties that will help help it serve as a check on Chinese power. And the Biden administration has continued that trend. Biden hosted uh, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi in a state visit recently to mark the latest set of deals that enhance this partnership. Can you tell us the details of those deals? Yeah, so the deals that were uh, publicly announced were very much about a science and technology partnership. Um, and I think that was, it's interesting because there are sort of the, the general commitments to uh, inter- international rules and global order and sovereignty and um, sort of condemning uh, use of force to achieve political objectives. Uh, but that was, I think, sort of further down in the joint statement. The highest parts of the joint statement are about the science technology, or really the technology cooperation that um, is taking place. And some of that is mature technologies that are about to sort of be consummated very quickly. And some are in terms of the um, sort of a research and development sort of collaboration and brokering our, our innovation systems to work together. Uh, so those in emerging technologies that we're talking about, like, you know, on quantum technologies, 5, 5G and 6G um, uh, wireless networks, uh, high performance computing, synthetic biology. Uh, but the those things are always so abstract and hard to like imagine. I think there's actually a lot of meat on the bone there. And there's a lot of uh, efforts to put our um, uh, our labs, our laboratory, our national labs working together. But they're still kind of abstract and hard to imagine. So there were some actual specific tangible things that were announced that I think will um, really get people's attention. So one of them was an agreement that was announced for uh, General Electric to build engines in collaboration with an Indian uh, public sector defense enterprise. Um, And so they would build them in India and sell them to the Indian military to, to power their indigenous fighter aircraft. Uh, and that indigenous fighter aircraft is one that will, you know, ultimately, if they build up enough of these squadrons, we'll be able to substitute out a lot of uh, Russian squadrons that uh, are Russian origin sort of, uh, fighter squadrons that India has in its arsenal and be used directly uh, in terms of de- deterring and defending against Chinese aggression on its uh, shared but contested border with China. So there's a direct line from technology sharing and collaboration and um, uh and to all the way, like a through through point to, um, or a through line rather to uh, Indians or defense and deterrence against China, which is also in sort of the U.S. interest. Uh, and reciprocally, the U.S. has um, uh, agreed, or rather India has agreed to purchase uh, estimated about 30 Sea um, uh, Guardian uh, MQ-9Bs, which would be, uh, they sort of have, uh, they're armed drones, armed sort of high altitude, uh, long endurance drones. But they also have a very exquisite role to play in maritime reconnaissance. And so a large share of these are going to go to the Indian Navy that will then be able to plug in and work closely with other partners that operate these systems and are trying to build sort of a common operating picture of of the Indian Ocean. And so that means working very closely with the United States and the other quadrilateral countries uh, for shared maritime reconnaissance and tracking of, uh, you know, any any sorts of sort of uh, uh, vessels that are of concern, including uh, Chinese uh, subsurface and you know submarine uh, capabilities that are operating in the Indian Ocean. So I think those are maybe sort of two tangible exchanges that are taking place, but they're the tip of the iceberg for what is I think a very robust um, S and T cooperation agenda. Semi, I forgot to mention semiconductors, space cooperation. India signed on to the Artemis Accords for uh, civil space exploration and peaceful use of space. Uh, 
India is leading in another venture on digital public infrastructure, uh, which is essentially its response to China's digital Silk Road. So providing uh, open architecture, uh, software-based digital infrastructure to states that don't want um, the Chinese sort of black boxes of uh, of Huawei um, sort of uh, controlling their data and and sort of you know in- interfering in their privacy and the United States has backed India's efforts in this so there's a I think a really robust uh, technology cooperation agenda that was publicly announced but the stuff that's not announced is the stuff that's probably going on sort of in the military domain that now the country has a huge incentive to um, they they talk about it it's it's known it's it, it's it's discussed in 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 op eds and newspapers. But it's not something that the the, the leaders have to sort of proclaim uh, at the uh, off the rooftops. But there's a pretty robust military to military cooperation uh, project that's underway in terms of uh, joint um, joint exercises, training, uh, mutual support, intelligence sharing, and I think ultimately that this could scale uh, to something more substantial over time as well. I want to ask about how aligned U.S. and Indian interests actually are and whether U.S. policymakers have realistic expectations of that. So Ashley Tellis at at Carnegie criticizes the U.S. approach to India uh, recently in in foreign affairs as a bad bet. He says that New Delhi, quote, does not harbor any innate allegiance toward preserving the liberal international order and retains an enduring aversion towards participating in mutual defense. It seeks to acquire advanced technologies from the United States to bolster its own economic and military capabilities and thus facilitate its rise as a great power capable of balancing China independently. But it does not presume that American assistance imposes any further obligations on itself. Excuse the long quote. You've also addressed this same thing uh, in a piece for the Washington Quarterly a few years ago. Um, You described inflated expectations that the relationship will yield more for U.S. interests than it's actually likely to in the end. And I, I guess the question is, have we given too much for too little? There's an alignment of interests, but India is probably going to adhere to its own interests and not ours. And that suggests that we might not get much out of this courting. The defense industry certainly gets some rents, as always. So they get a little more enriched and India benefits. But what does the United States get? Yeah, so I think this is this is great. Um this is the challenge of working with a, a rising power that imagines itself to eventually be a pole and may actually be a pole in the international system. It's, it's challenging because it has its own interests and has its own, uh, let's say, sort of more enhanced bargaining leverage than a lot of other U.S. partners uh, that we're, we're accustomed to dealing with. And actually, I'd say the strongest bargaining leverage that India has that we kind of have a hard time wrapping our heads around is that India is probably independently secure without any U.S. security commitments because by dint of nuclear weapons, right? It is, it is a fundamental difference between all other U.S. allies or most other U.S. allies, uh, which is that India has the sort of the a defensive last resort that a lot of other states don't have, and so it's it has not has no desire for a U.S. security umbrella or U.S. Uh, security commitments. Now, in this world, that actually might be a good thing, right? Because we struck we've We've been overextended, I think, in terms of our security commitments, and it's it's been a political problem. It's also sort of a material challenge. Uh, and so in this world, it actually might be useful to sort of seek out partners who are not seeking those security commitments, but seeking other things. In that case, I do think what India is really seeking is technology cooperation. And there's a maybe a win-win proposition uh, for the U.S. to also get a lot from sort of India's uh, advanced technologies and science technology, a talent pool. Um, but 
to your point, your question about realistic expectations. So I would frame it a little bit like this. I think our the problem with our expectations is that they have been uh, both extremely wide and extremely deep. That we have we've had we've desired sort of uh, India alignment on on shared interests over such a wide swath of issues that we've really spread ourselves thin. Uh, and so in that paper you referenced that I wrote in the Washington Quarterly a few years ago, I was sort of going through like the litany of things that we have sought Indian alignment and cooperation on. And it was everything from Iran to Russia to Afghanistan to energy security um, to purchasing more stuff from uh, the more sort of commercial sales um, and defense sales from the United States. And to me, that all detracted from the one central area where we should be pushing India on and maybe sort of letting the other stuff be bracketed off or sort of pushing less on those other issues. And that was the issue of China. And I think that was always the origin story of the U.S.-India relationship is a recognition that um, to sort of have a stable balance of power um, in Asia, you needed other states that were capable of uh, sort of creating geopolitical pluralism in the region. And certainly Japan is one of those actors, but Japan is ultimately a declining power and India was on the rise. And so it made a lot of sense to try to bring India into the fold. So Ashley, I think, is right in a in, in sort of a... Um, in being very technical about the term that India is not going to be an ally in our in the way we were used to. It's not going to sort of sign a mutual defense treaty with the United States because it doesn't want that. Uh, and we don't really do that anymore. It's 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 sort of like passe to do those kinds of things. Uh, I I think that thus far India does seem to be committed to a um, a rules-based order. I wouldn't call it a liberal international order, but a, a rules-based order. I think that's right, that they don't necessarily want to be promoting sort of all the liberal agenda, the, the sort of the liberal ideas of, that the United States espouses. But I think in terms of sort of the core ones, freedom of navigation, overflight, sovereignty for states, um, uh, following, abiding by international law and adjudicating disputes peacefully rather than through force. I think India is not only all on board on that, but defends those principles, speaks about them routinely, just came out, you know, in the joint statement today. So, so a narrower sense of that rules-based order, I think India is on board with. Um, and I think you can actually have mutual defense support without uh, alliance commitments um, if we're a little more creative about how we, how we approach it. And so I'll give some examples. Um, today, Singapore allows the United States to fly P-8, P-8s from its bases in Singapore to patrol the South China Sea. Now, I guess it's an open question as to whether uh, these would be allowed in wartime. But I think China would have to factor in that possibility. And it's also possible that the presence of sort of those P-8 operations flying today is also what gives China some pause uh, for initiating any uh, sort of aggression in the region. Um, I think that's, you know, there's, there's um, so that's sort of a case of like not a treaty commitment, but, you know, access and basing and overflight, which are really materially quite important. And the, the U.S. national defense strategy talks a lot about um, that. So if you can get that without mutual defense commitments, that's I'd say that's a net enhancer of U.S. power projection and is a worthwhile objective. Um, during the Cold War, there's new um, declassified studies of Sweden's support for NATO. Sweden was like ostensibly and officially neutral during the Cold War, but they had actually made secret plans with with NATO for allowing for overflight and for landing spots in case they, and runways that were sort of able to accommodate NATO aircraft and use of radar installations and certainly airspace. And so all these um, features enabled US and NATO power projection 
even without an alliance commitment, actually with a sort of ostensible neutrality commitment. So I, I think we can, I don't think we have to feel constrained by the fact that India is not going to sign on the dotted line of a formal neutral defense alliance. I think there are lots of other creative ways uh, to work with India, uh, both in terms in peacetime uh, to deter China and in, in, in crisis and conflict time as well. But it just requires us to sort of think outside sort of our traditional boxes of, of how we do military strategy and posture. So India has been managing its relationship with the United States and also with other major powers like Russia and China. And you can say anything more on that that, that you'd like to. But I'd also like to ask, in recent years with the changing global dynamics, but also with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, how does India see their longtime rival Pakistan? Um, Pakistan has, has a growing relationship with China. Talk about the dynamics there um, in terms of India's threats and priorities. So this is, it is still tricky to, I think we still need some more studies on how India is recalibrating its capabilities and posture to wrestle with the fact that China is uh, not only the more strategic challenge, but also uh, maybe even more aggressive on its doorstep compared to, to compared to Pakistan. So um, I think that India is starting to redistribute its capabilities to focus more on China. Uh, it would always say that, you know, China's strategic threat, Pakistan's sort of the, the near-term imminent security threat. And the way they would sort of say that is like, you know, they saw themselves in competition with China and maybe even rivalry and certainly uh, border disputes, but not uh, didn't see sort of an imminent threat arriving from China. And I think that changed after 2020 uh, when um, there were uh, sort of movements by China on the disputed border uh, that India saw as aggression. And then there were the first casualties on that border uh, in, I want to say, like almost 50 years or so. Uh, so it was a pretty substantial wake-up call. And I think that is, and, and then subsequently what has happened is you've seen Indian force deployments really um, escalate on on that line of actual control between India and China. And you've actually seen an armored core move from the border with Pakistan to the border with China, recast, reassigned, probably re-equipped to some degree too, though probably there's some limits on, on sort of uh, uh, extra equipment. But, but that is a significant posture change. But that may not be sufficient, right? There might be a lot of other things that are required. Like, I mean, India's sort of political establishment and, and bureaucratic, bureaucratic establishment also needs to readjust, right? You probably need to assign sort of more intelligence officers to focus on China, more Chinese language speakers in the foreign ministry uh, and within the intelligence services, uh, more forces that are designing for high altitude mountain warfare rather than um, uh, land, uh, sort of, you know, planes of Punjab uh, tank warfare that like the Indian military had. Uh, built itself around for 40 years, uh, and probably a lot more assets in the naval domain, because what you can do on the on the border with China is really kind of hold a line and defend against incursions, but you can't create any offense. I think, I believe personally, that there's not much offense that can be done on the land-based border. I think India's offensive potential comes at sea. Uh, that's where it has the most maneuver space, but the Indian military has not been, has been underfunding the Indian Navy for quite a long time. So so there are a lot more things that India would need to do to demonstrate that it's very serious about this sort of military challenge of China, that it's still, I think, st stuck in some legacy paradigms that might have something to do uh, with its concerns of Pakistan. You know, it's fought multiple wars with Pakistan, has periodic nuclear crises with Pakistan. So it's it's not a small thing. 
But I think um, while there's sort of a modicum of stability on the border between India and Pakistan, it's in India's interest to start to build up sort of its capabilities versus China. Um, you know, you mentioned the uh, the Russia and China relationship. So just say a couple words on that. I mean, with Russia, this is this is a real challenge that's been exposed over the last year plus, which is that Russia is a legacy partner for India, but it's got but it's so path dependent in terms of uh, certainly arms and equipment, certain nuclear capabilities, um, and sort of shared experiences in history that I don't think India can easily break up with Russia. I think this this lasts for decades. Um, it's it's certainly on the downturn. It's it's diminishing. Um, you know, its peak of the relationship was probably a decade or two decades ago. But uh, but I but I still think it's a long tail. And because of that, um, you know, I think the U.S. and the and sort of the OECD, Western G7 countries kind of need to come to terms with that India is going to have to have a relationship with Russia. Uh, and that does. And I think it's tolerable so long as India can, you know, remains committed to um, uh, coordinating on the challenge of China. On China, I think it's it is hard to say sort of exactly where India is today. But I th- think that India is generally a little less enthusiastic about overtly calling China out as an adversary. Um, in India's interests, uh, it would be better off if it could come up with some modus vivendi on the border between India and China and not have to um, allocate so many resources to defense and deterrence and instead reallocate those resources for domestic development. I mean, I think a lot of Indian analysts and policymakers, even in the foreign policy space, will acknowledge that India's number one security challenge is actually development. It's not China. And so while we have this moment of uh, congruence between the U.S. and India uh, on China, largely due to China's sort of own ineptitude in, in managing that relationship and sort of, you know, kind of unnecessary aggression. Uh, we should still also sort of be aware of the fact that, like, if given the choice, I think India would seek, um, you know, greater stability on that border if it came to sort of some sort of negotiated settlement uh, and then redirect its resources and capabilities towards uh, sort of domestic and internal uh, needs and ultimately sort of build up the power that like, like the way China did sort of hide and buy for 20, 30 years and then sort of emerge on the world stage in the way China did. I think it sees sort of a lot of sort of value to that pathway. The question is whether um, China will allow India to do that. And thus far, uh, I say it's inept because I think I think if, if China offered that bargain, I think India would take it. But for reasons that are sort of hard to explain, whether they're ideological or um Otherwise, uh, China is not offering that bargain right now. It's actually regressing even more. And I think that is driving India into um, uh, the U.S. and the West's arms. Uh, I wonder if we can kind of almost uh, learn from India's shrewd uh, restraint here. I mean, it's funny that they're geographically proximate to China and they view China as less of a existential threat than most people in DC do. But uh, as a final question, I wonder if you just give us some near-term and and longer-term advice on how best to make policy with respect to the US-India relationship. What should policymakers be looking at and prioritizing now and down the line? Yeah. Okay. Near-term, longer. That's a good good way to distinguish it. Near-term, I think we should start being more open and honest about transactions. Uh, there's been a long sort of, tw- I think for 20 years, the U.S. has been afraid to ask things of India, or we've asked for like 100 things and spread ourselves so thin that we aren't like focused on one specific thing. And I think 
And I do think this administration was able to sort of do a lot of that um, in this uh, this recent um, uh, presidential leader leader summit uh, that was on the backs of like you know six months of like significant preparation and multiple visits by um, uh, you know cabinet level officials to to India and vice versa. Um, but asking for things and saying this, these are important. These are what these are transactions that friends do, and not being afraid of the the term transactions or transactionalism, because I think that is the bedrock of of friendships. Right? You can't have uh, relationships of mutual trust if you don't exchange. Um, if there's no reciprocity there, and that's sort of like the the core of how. Um, uh, these relationships form is through sort of repeated and iterated exchange and reciprocity that are demonstrated such that trust is accrued. Uh, and then you don't need to sort of be so nitpicky about like a, a perfect one-to-one exchange. And I don't think that either side is being nitpicky about that, but I think it's okay to ask for things. In this case, I think what the United States should be asking for should always be measured in terms of deterrence, because I think that is at least the central problem that, you know, I think that we're thinking about in the Indo-Pacific today is preventing the outbreak of a uh, interstate major major power war. Uh, and all things that we ask of India should be oriented towards that objective of how it should enhance deterrence to prevent major power war. In the long term, I actually think sort of the real prize of India uh, or potential prize of India, sort of depending on how things go, is uh, our, the linkage of our science and technology ecosystems. Uh, because... India produces a lot of really smart engineers and scientists. Um, it's sort of, it, it is sort of a driver of innovation, and it does it on a scale that is potentially competitive with China. I mean, I think the U.S. is obviously a leader in technology and sort of high, high technology, but um, there's a concern that we just won't have the ability to compete with the scale of China just in terms of manpower size, just the number of coders and uh, out, uh, sort of the scale of algorithmic warfare. You just need a lot more. Uh, and we have very capable technology partners in Europe and East Asia, but not of the same volume as you could potentially get out of India. If India produces um, 10 times the number of, uh, of engineers in a year as the United States, and even if only a tenth of them are uh, you know, sort of a certain capability, if you're able to link our systems together, that's doubling your capacity um, uh, for, in terms of, sort of all, a whole range of sort of engineering talent from, uh, you know, uh, robotics to uh, programming, so so I think that's the that's the future. And then there's you know it's just like Indian science has been um, uh, quite robust for over a hundred years. You know, major contributions to scientific discovery, and I think that is the future of being able to collaborate to for for better sort of breakthrough innovations, but also being able to do it in a way that's responsible, right? Sort of setting some some parameters around how we do this, whether it's sort of privacy enhancements. Uh, whether it's about sort of responsible use, um, I think that's a, an opportunity where we have a chance to sort of cooperate with a, another sort of partner of scale uh, that can also set the parameters and boundaries for the use of technologies that can then be sort of a viable competitor to the to the Chinese model. So that to me is like the longer term play, um, and uh, and I think sort of both those things I think are understood by a lot of a lot of folks who are, who are manning the ship these days on the relationship. But um, that's that's how I'd see it. Samir Lalwani, thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks again for having me.